a blessing for the heretics. And what does it have to do with gospel reliability? And why do I have a picture of the man born blind as my thumbnail for today's video? Well, if you stay with me for this video, you will learn the answers to all of these questions here on Lydia McGrew's YouTube channel where we're making common sense rigorous. So first of all, what's a blessing for the heretics? To know that, you have to learn just a little bit of Jewish history. This is related to a bit of Jewish liturgy, a prayer, in fact, in a sense of prayer. It's actually a curse. It is included from the early centuries of the Christian era onward, but exactly how early is part of the question. Jewish scholars do not all agree about how ancient this is. And what it is, is actually a curse. So the word blessing is sort of ironic there. And it says something like, for the Nazarenes and the sectarians or heretics, it says things like, let them be cut off, let them perish, let them be cut out of the book of life, and so forth. Very harsh language. It's actually a curse. And the Nazarenes does appear to refer to the Christians, which is kind of interesting. So how old is this? Well, that's something that not all scholars agree about. But one story in the Talmud says that it was fixed or put in place at Yavne, which was a place after the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. And then after that, the Jews were allowed to found a kind of a school of uh, rabbinic study and so forth under Gamaliel II. He was the grandson of the Gamaliel that we read about in, in the Bible, the teacher of the Apostle Paul. And supposedly, according to this study uh, story, it was a way to smoke out any minim, as they were called, or heretics, or presumably Christians as well, because they wouldn't want to curse themselves. So if one of these were the reader, and he's reading this, and he hesitates, or he stops, or he doesn't read it, that smokes him out, and then you would exclude him from the synagogue. Now, as the story goes, this would have been then the time when there was this very definitive break between the church and the synagogue, and any Christians who were also Jews who were attending the synagogue would be smoked out and excluded. Again, scholars don't all agree that that's exactly how the history went, but I'm going to accept that for the sake of the argument, because it is that version of the story that's used by some New Testament scholars as an argument against the historicity of the Gospel of John. Interesting. So how does that go? Well, you may recall in John chapter 9, it specifically says that the parents of the man born blind were nervous when they were called to talk about, was he their son? How was he now able to see? Was he born blind? And it says they they answered the first questions. Yes, he's our son. Yes, he was born blind. But when it came to how does he now see, they said, he is of age. Ask him. They They didn't want to answer that question, and they in fact had not witnessed the miracle. And it said that they were nervous because the leaders had said that if anyone confessed that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, he would be cast out of the synagogue. And then that comes up again later in that passage, the man born blind himself is cast out of the synagogue because he clearly does think that Jesus is the Messiah. <clears throat> The New Testament critics, these are mainstream critics. Uh, I have not heard any evangelical scholars specifically single this out. 
I would say that the methods of certain evangelical scholars would certainly leave it open for them to single this out as something that was added later. But I've only actually seen this done by more mainstream, more liberal critics, such as C.K. Barrett, the late C.K. Barrett, or um, Martin, a scholar named Martin. And what they'll say is, well, this is an anachronism. The community that produced the Gospel of John was experiencing this. This was happening to them because the Gospel was written toward the end of the century, and this blessing on the heretics had been put forward in the synagogues and then they were being cast out of the synagogue. And so then they put it anachronistically in the gospel to make it more meaningful to them, to address their situation in life. So that that's invented, at least that part of the story. And then that's of course gonna cast doubt on the rest of the story as well. And it's just supposed to be one of those examples of how the gospel of John is anachronistic, how he's not, uh, writing things that are well suited to the actual situation of the time of Christ, but rather to the situation at the time that the gospel was written, which is supposedly late. Now that's how that so-called argument goes, but you'll notice that it's really just an assertion. It's not actually an argument. It's, it, it's a theory, but what's supposed to be the argument for it? Part of making common sense rigorous is that we try to find those unstated assumptions and put them in there explicitly and then say, uh, are those well grounded? So what's going on here? Well, the assumption is that if there was this more official attempt to exclude Christians from the synagogue late in the first century, then there was no attempt to exclude followers of Jesus during Jesus' own ministry. How does that follow? Why is, why is that not true? I mean, why is that true? Why would, why would you even think that? Notice that the passage in John 9 doesn't say anything about prayer. It doesn't say anything about a liturgy. It doesn't say anything about people reading a, a part of a prayer and stumbling or anything. It doesn't look like this story of smoking out the Christians at all. It's just if you say that Jesus is the Messiah, you will be cast out of the synagogue. Were the religious leaders there in Jerusalem motivated to do something that harsh? Well, of course, they got Jesus crucified just a few chapters later. Uh, in the book of Acts, they beat Peter and John. They send Saul, as he was then, to go drag people out and, and beat them and so forth if they're confessing, if they're confessing that Jesus is the Messiah. Jews who were confessing that Jesus was the Messiah and following Jesus. That's the persecution in Acts. Paul himself gets persecuted all across Asia Minor when he's trying to teach Jews in the synagogue. So there was certainly a motivation to persecute those who confess Jesus. We find that as a, as a repeated theme. Moreover, in John, we find that they're very concerned about people confessing that Jesus is the Messiah. They expressly say that they're afraid that the Romans are going to come and, and take away their what remaining national sovereignty or independence that they have because of a, a feared messianic movement. Now, actually, they're the only ones who, who seem to be concerned about that, and they actually have to pressure Pontius Pilate to take Jesus seriously as a threat, but that seems to have been in their minds. Uh, you can say that John has invented all of that, but at that point, we're, we're not acknowledging the way that the story actually hangs together and is actually entirely credible. There's no 
claim here that this declaration was something they wanted imposed far away in the empire. In fact, it wouldn't have been relevant far away in the empire, would it? It would have been relevant where the people were following Jesus, which at that time was just in Galilee and down in Jerusalem in those areas where he was actually ministering. Is it credible that the Jerusalem leadership would have put forward such a declaration for as far as anyone would obey them? Sure, of course, it's very credible. There's nothing credible about this, incredible about this. There's nothing about the existence of the blessing for the heretics quite a few decades later that actually makes this casting out of the synagogue improbable. In fact, it's very difficult to construct a set of premises that would actually lead to that conclusion. It's just an assumption that the author must be aiming for something later, must be aiming for something that we think we know about independently, but since it couldn't be that, then he must be wrong. You can see uh, here a bit of a similarity to the census in Luke. Well, it couldn't be the census under Quirinius in AD uh, 6, so since Luke has to be aiming for the census in Quirinius, under Quirinius in AD 6, then he must be wrong. So similarly here, well, it couldn't be the blessing on the heretics, which was only put in place after 70 AD. So if John is sort of literarily alluding to that, he must be making something up and putting it in there, and therefore he must be factually not portraying something that literally happened. Well, there are a lot of assumptions going into that that I would say we have no rational ground for granting. What I think we see here is that scholars will often take something very seriously simply because other scholars have suggested it. And it's interesting to see how often it's addressed. Dia Carson rejects this and he has, you know, very good, very sensible arguments against it. And I don't blame him for addressing it. I'm addressing it right here in my video. But it's important to say, I think, quite clearly that it's an extremely poor argument against the full historicity of John. It's an extremely poor argument against the historicity of the story in John 9. It embodies a lot of completely unjustified assumptions. And so it's not something that we should take seriously from an epistemological point of view. Since it has been popular among liberal scholars, we may take the time to address it, but that's different from considering it to actually have any, any force or any value. I say in the eye of the beholder that sometimes it seems that scholarly ingenuity is being given epistemic weight. And I think that's something we need to be really careful not to do. The mere fact that scholars can come up with something and then that they repeat it as if it's true and that other scholars kind of metaphorically speaking, pull their beards and seem to be saying, wow, I don't know what to do about that or, or something of that kind. That doesn't actually mean that it's a good argument at all. And so part of what I'm trying to do in my scholarship is to, is to break that taboo on saying, wow, that's a terrible argument. Why would anyone take that argument seriously? We don't need to take that argument seriously. Being willing to do that by bringing out the unstated assumptions and by showing their weakness is part of seeing the real evidence for the gospel's historicity as we're making common sense rigorous. Thanks for watching.